Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the diplomatic efforts to avoid a war between Russia and Ukraine as the Biden White House and its NATO allies and Putin and the Kremlin continue to speak past each other with one side threatening decisive sanctions and the other making unrealistic demands while whipping up war fever on state media. Joining us is Michael Gorham, Professor of Russian Studies at the University of Florida and author of two award-winning books on Russian language, culture and politics, After Newspeak, Language, Culture and the Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, the Language, Culture and Politics of New Media and Communication and the Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. He has recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist in all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. We will discuss what can be achieved in the crucial talks in Geneva on January the 9th and 10th to satisfy Russian security concerns and whether Putin's overwrought rhetoric aimed at vindicating Russia's wounded pride along with his massive troop deployments make it difficult for him to back down. Then we'll examine concerns that Merrick Garland's Justice Department is not doing enough to stop the rewriting of history by Trump and his followers both in terms of whitewashing the January 6th insurrection and further muddying the waters to obscure Trump's connections to Putin and the Kremlin's involvement in getting him elected. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then finally, we will speak with Ian Haney-Lopez, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving Democracy. We will discuss his essay at Project Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy? An Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics with Trump's GOP actively engineering an electoral coup following the failed attempt on January the 6th and with Trump's GOP actively engineering an electoral coup following the failed attempt on January the 6th we'll discuss what patriotic Americans can do to save their democracy from the resurgence of plutocratic populism. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. 
And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Michael Gorham, who's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on Russian language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and the Politics in Russia, from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. In addition to the two co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communications, and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia, he recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging, bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign internet independent of the World Wide Web. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gorham. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, President Biden had a phone conversation with the Ukrainian President Zelensky on Sunday, after which the White House announced that, quote, President Biden made clear that the United States and its allies and partners will respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. And there'll be a meeting between senior U.S. and Russian officials. It's scheduled uh, on January the 9th and 10th in Geneva to discuss this worsening situation. But, Michael, it seems to me that the United States and, and to some extent, its Western allies as well, and Russia continue to talk past each other. Is it, What's your reading on it? Well, I, uh, I think the United States is... Uh, Doing all it can, all it can to uh, to address a, a, a very unpredictable uh, situation. Uh, we really can't get into the mind of the one man whose uh, whose finger is on the proverbial button here. So anybody who uh, pretends to know what's going to happen is 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 fooling you. That said, it's pretty clear with the with the troop buildup on the border. We're looking at uh, over 150,000 troops at the last count. He is very serious. Whether or not um, he wants to actually uh, take back Ukraine, I think in his historical mind, uh, Ukraine is a, has been always a, a, a close, integral part of, of Russia, Russia and belongs to it. But whether he'd actually go that far is, uh, is stretches the imagination. So it's difficult to, uh, to determine what exactly he wants, I think, in the short term. Things like meetings with Biden and uh, the ability to show his population that he is uh, a player on the world stage is uh, is a is a is a, a big goal, and um, we can only hope that um, after a, a few of those meetings and some uh, attempt on the part of the United States to uh, at least give the appearance of a convincing Ukraine to come back to the table. That uh, that things settle down a little bit, but again, it's uh, it's very difficult to tell and very a very tenuous situation. Just last week, he introduced uh, draft legislation to the uh, Duma, basically uh, making it easier to give uh, foreign nationals Russian citizenship among the criteria uh, former affiliation with the USSR or being the child of somebody with a former affiliation of the USSR. And we all know 
how um, how Russia has used the, the the dispersal of passports to justify sending troops into foreign territories. Well, Biden spoke with Putin for nearly an hour on Thursday, but then Putin's foreign affairs advisor said that Biden's sanctions, quote, could lead to a complete rupture of relations between our countries and Russia-West relations will be severely damaged. You follow Russian media, Michael, and my understanding is that Russian media for the longest time is beating the drums of war and getting quite hysterical. In fact, Putin himself, in an address a few days ago, uh, talked about NATO's missiles on our doorstep at our home, implying that somehow offensive nuclear weapons are are being deployed by NATO in both the Baltics and in uh, Ukraine. When in fact, as far as I know, the opposite is true, that offensive nuclear weapons have been installed in Russia's little enclave in uh, Kaliningrad. Right. So my concern is that Putin's own rhetoric is getting out ahead of himself. I don't know how much he can back down. Yeah, that is that is a concern, and it certainly doesn't help that uh, the media is uh, more than willing to uh, stoke these uh, these fires that uh, that that he has set. You don't really get uh, a lot of diversity of uh, of opinion in the mainstream television uh, media, which uh, has a large portion of the population's attention. Of course, a growing number of uh, citizens uh, have access to alternative means of information. And I think that's probably one of the one of the problems that Putin is facing in the in the long term. Uh, the fact that uh, he can't de- depend entirely on uh, on Putin, Putin television to uh, basically set the agenda. So while there is a consistent drumbeat on the mainstream media channels and those those nightly talk shows where people like to uh, to uh, flex their muscles, uh, proverbially, there are more and more sources that uh, uh, a growing portion of the population have access to that not only uh, show what's really going on abroad, but also shed light on the stagnant state of the Russian economy and uh, the very dismal state of uh, Russia's ability to deal with the the pandemic, both issues that uh, are a a pretty big liability for not just Putin, but the people people who have a vested interest in in keeping him strong, whether he resigns or steps down as president in 2024 or elects to go up again. They're they're the ones who stand to retain power should he leave. But are you saying, Michael, that the internal problems that Putin and his cronies are faced with, because they're basically a, it's a regime of kleptocracy, so they're stealing the country blind. So they've got to do a little bread and circuses, don't they, to distract the public? Yes, that, that's absolutely right. Now, whether or not that uh, leads to all-out kinetic warfare, I uh, at this point I still remain somewhat skeptical, although, again, I have absolutely no idea. I think just the rhetorical bluster and the uh, flexing of international muscles and the display of Russia being a major international power that foreign powers must contend with does a considerable amount to uh, to boost his his popularity. But Russia does have legitimate security 
uh, concerns. And even, you know, Henry Kissinger and a number of U.S. observers of, and scholars of Russia and the Soviet Union have reiterated this. So how do you satisfy Putin's concerns about NATO's encroachment right up to its borders? At the same time, it's the people in Ukraine and Poland and the Baltics who want to have democracy and the rule of law. They don't want to have gangster government. That's all that Putin offers. He had a gangster government installed in Ukraine that was toppled. He's got a gangster government in Belarus. That's what he's offering. So you can't blame the people of Poland and the Baltic states and of uh, Ukraine that they want democracy and the rule of law, surely. Uh, no, you certainly can't, and you can't blame uh, the people in at least Western Ukraine who, uh, who, given what's gone on in the past five years or so, see Russia as even more of an antig- antagonistic uh, uh, neighbor and are less inclined than they may have been back then to engage. So I think uh, he's, in the long term, he's doing himself a, a great, and his country, a great, a great disservice. Uh, you know, it could be that he wins over certain enclaves in the southeastern portion of Ukraine. And, you know, that may, I don't know, who knows whether that will will happen. It may be a, a, uh, a more likely result, but uh, it certainly isn't going to uh, do anything to convince the rest of Ukraine to uh, turn westward. And if anything, it'll, it'll be greater proof that that's the way to go. But does that mean then that, to avoid war and to give Putin something because he's definitely determined. I don't think he's going to back down. So does that mean you return to the Minsk agreement and convince the Ukrainians to give up the Donbass? Well, my understanding of the Minsk agreement doesn't involve total... uh, It it involves uh, holding independent elections in that region, Mm -hmm. uh, but it still remains part of of Ukraine. So I think that... uh, uh, that probably is where the Biden administration is looking for a possible way out of this. And uh, whether Zelensky is, uh, is open to doing that at this point uh, is, is difficult to say. I think it's uh, probably within his best interest to, to do that, um, to, to uh, kind of de-escalate uh, this, this broader problem that's, that we're watching unfold. But just in general, what can the U.S. and NATO do to assuage Russia's legitimate concerns about NATO's encroachment because they keep referring to the deal that was made between Secretary of State James Baker and Gorbachev when the Cold War ended, that NATO would not move eastward, which it has done. Well, the history on that is, is, is quite hazy, I think, if you, if you look back. I haven't seen any concrete documentation that says such a promise was actually given, although Putin loves to, uh, loves to quote it. Uh, not an inch further east, I think, is the language that he used in a recent speech that he gave on this. Uh, but given that that's his, uh, his understanding, no, I don't think there is anything to assuage him. It's uh, whether or not his... Uh, uh, fears are legitimate or not is uh, is the question. I mean, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania are not not keen on uh, on a return to the status quo in uh, in 1990. So there isn't really there's a hope of a compromise, but there's none that looks apparent. 
No, I think the uh, the best we can hope for is uh, some sort of a face-saving agreement to, to return to the Minsk uh, Accords and have some sort of a elections in the Donbass region in southeastern Ukraine and hope that uh, over time the transition of power in Russia uh, puts all this sort of attempt to... Um, rebuild the Soviet Union uh, behind us for good. I think Putin uh, is really looking at his place in history now, and uh, whoever takes over after him, after him fortunately, will have a, a new page in the, in the history books and hopefully will want to define Russia in a more forward-looking way. Well, Marco Gorham, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Likewise, and again, I've been speaking with Michael Gorham, who's a professor of Russian studies at the University of Florida and the author of two award-winning books on Russian language, culture, and politics, after Newspeak, Language, Culture, and the Politics in Russia from Gorbachev to Putin, and Speaking in Soviet Tongues, Language, Culture, and the Politics of Voice in Revolutionary Russia. And in addition, he's co-edited volumes, Digital Russia, The Language, Culture, and Politics of New Media Communication, and The Culture and Politics of Verbal Prohibition in Putin's Russia. And he recently published articles devoted to the political and rhetorical impact of trolls, hackers, blogging bureaucrats, tweeting presidents, dictators on Instagram, Alexei Navalny on YouTube, and the Putin administration's recent efforts to enlist all legislative, technological, and rhetorical means possible to establish a sovereign Internet independent of the World Wide Web. We're going to take a brief station break back examining concerns that Merrick Garland's Justice Department is not doing enough to stop the rewriting of history by Trump and his followers, both in terms of whitewashing the January 6th insurrection and further muddying the waters to obscure Trump's connections to Putin and the Kremlin's involvement in getting him elected. I have breathed all the sea. You're our fan, prophecy. Our destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up it will be on your side welcome back i'm ian masters and this is background briefing available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is scott horton who's a professor at columbia law school and a contributing editor at harper's in legal affairs and national security he serves on the american branch of the international law association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. A great pleasure to be with you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Scott. And you've been in Europe lately, and I was very struck by reports that Angela Merkel, who stepped down as a long-serving Chancellor of Germany, she had a conversation recently with Vice President Kamala Harris, in which Merkel rather plaintively said, you know, what's happening to America? The Americans were the heroes who liberated Western Europe from the Nazis. And now you have a kind of Nazi movement within the United States government. Is that reflected in what you observed in Europe from European analysts and leaders? Yes, quite certainly. I think there was a uh, a huge sigh of relief that was breathed breathed when uh, Biden was uh, elected and then was sworn in, notwithstanding all the contretemps on uh, January 6th, um, uh, because he's someone they knew, they felt they understood and, and so forth. 
but I think they now increasingly, they look at the situation in the United States. They see uh, that uh, Trump is not just disappearing. Instead, he is launching a slow campaign to retake power and not to retake power through democratic means, but through um, a, a coup or uh, some sort of electoral chicanery. And I think the elites in Europe are very, very concerned about this because they see in him and the Republican Party he's creating, uh, they they just see nothing of their ally, the United States, um, that they know and appreciate. And instead, during uh, Trump's uh, time in office, U.S. policy, as it affected the Europeans, was, in a word, unpredictable. They simply never knew what he was going to say and what he was going to do. But it was disloyal to his allies in Europe. And uh, they felt extremely uncomfortable about it, uh, beginning to end. And also his relationship to uh, Russia and China, they also thought were uh, unpredictable, uh, uncertain, constantly shifting uh, and difficult. So I think Europeans right now are definitely very concerned about the situation in the United States, uh, concerned about what might happen in the midterm elections this year in November, and very concerned about how power might shift again in 2024. Well, I think the Europeans have been concerned about Trump's relationships with Putin, which have always been murky. And, and unfortunately, the Mueller report was obviously buried to some extent by William Barr, and much of, of what was in it was never really explored further. Now, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, on a bipartisan report, really did lay out the connections between Trump and Russia. And one of the things that happened recently that I thought was very telling, uh, that may be in connection to what we're talking about here, concerns amongst the Europeans, The Guardian ran a story about the National Security Council meeting within the Kremlin when they decided, when Putin and and his National Security Council decided to intervene and interfere with the 2016 elections to help elect Trump and, and hurt Hillary Clinton. And that whole story was clearly a leak from British intelligence from MI6, but uh, it got no traction over here. And it, obviously the purpose of leaking that story was to sort of wake up the Americans to the who Trump is and and what his connections to the Kremlin are. I think that's right, and I think it shows that that's absolutely right because that was uh, some of the clearest evidence that has um, come to the forefront so far, uh, delineating this alliance, strategic alliance between Trump uh, and the Kremlin, and uh, documenting the fact that the. Uh, Kremlin did uh, dedicate considerable resources to ensure that Trump uh, was elected uh, in 2016. And the pushback you got from uh, American media focused on a sort of fatigue with the whole story about uh, Putin and the Kremlin and Trump uh, and a sense that this story had never really been proven and that it was all some sort of a conspiracy that was put together by Hillary uh, Clinton and her followers. And therefore, there was really no reason to look clearly at any of these evidence. Although, as you say, these materials clearly uh, were leaked by British intelligence. 
uh, were clearly validated by vetted and validated by British intelligence too. Appeared in an English newspaper. I mean, it had no connection whatsoever to Hillary Clinton or her campaign or anything about them. And then one of the most searing criticism of the materials that I heard consistently was uh, they were too accurate. You know that you know no one could accept a a bombshell of this sort when it so perfectly predicted everything that in fact subsequently happened. And I have to say that's one of the most bizarre criticisms I've ever heard. Right, indeed. And of course, the attitudes of the Kremlin were pretty clear that Putin had it covered one way or the other. If Hillary would have won, Trump would have run around the country leading rallies of locker up and stop the steal. And that is Trump's job. He's not an active agent in the sense that he's run by the FSB or the SVR, but he's a figure of infinite divisiveness. And that is Putin's motive, is to divide Americans and turn Americans against each other. And Trump is the perfect instrument, and he's continuing to do that. And since he now owns the GOP, and they're launching a massive uh, vote of suppression, it's likely that he will make a comeback and Putin will be absolutely <laughs> pulling the strings again. It's just amazing. And, and I'm astounded how somehow this can't get through to the American people of what suckers we are to be manipulated by this malign figure in this somewhat failed kleptocracy known as Russia. I mean, is that to be our future? Is the GOP going to be United Russia, Putin's party, and are we going to be an authoritarian kleptocracy? Yeah, I, I think the yeah the bigger problem is just even assume that Trump is out of the way. I mean, he is uh, what seventy five years old now, and uh, certainly in suboptimal wealth, in fa- uh, health rather. And uh, I think if we you know look at some of the things that came out about the time of his hospitalization, you know, we discover he has a number of very serious uh, comorbidities, um, uh, which would uh, suggest uh, he probably doesn't have more than a decade left to live. So even if he's out of the way, um, look at what's happened to the Republican Party as a whole. Um, you know, in the leadership of the Republican Party, he has uh, really substantially deformed this party and its attitudes towards American democracy, uh, rule, uh, human rights, um, the position and status of racial minorities, but also from the perspective of the Europeans, most importantly, their attitudes towards historical American allies, which includes, you know, Canada, Australia, Japan, Korea, uh, and the NATO allies in Europe. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that attitude in a word is disloyalty. So there's no longer a system of responsibility towards those allies uh, or towards a process of forming uh, foreign policy views um, in unison with them. Uh, which had, was something that had been developed very, very carefully over a period of two generations since the end of World War II. So one of the, uh, just to continue with this extraordinary and, and successful effort to bury Trump's connections to the Kremlin, to Putin, a real blow was struck recently by the indictments coming from John Durham's investigation at the Department of Justice. And it's pretty clear that the Steele dossier was was a sort of nuisance in a way. It was, I mean, there's a vast difference between opposition research, which is what it was, and intelligence gathering. 
and it was a very sloppy job. It was outsourced to, a, I think it's Ukrainian, actually, that was at uh, Brookings. And it seems as though the effect of that is that by discrediting the Steele dossier, as though the Steele dossier was the evidence upon which, for example, Obama and his intelligence team briefed Trump. Remember, Obama tried to get McConnell and Paul Ryan and their Democratic counterparts to go public about Russian interference when they learned about it. Well, the intelligence that was based upon was not the Steele dossier. It was much more real intelligence from sources within the Kremlin itself. So all of that stuff, except with the exception of the Senate Intelligence Committee report, has been kind of you know, muddied up, and they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater now because all the focus has been on the Steele dossier, which is largely irrelevant. So what's going on at the DOJ? Why is Garland letting this character, Durham, muddy the waters in the way that Bill Barr did by discrediting and distracting us from the real content of the Mueller report? Well, that's a really good question, Ian. But I mean, first, let me go back and just say the tactic that's going on here is a classic political tactic uh, that's used to throw the public off the sense of a serious vulnerability. Um, And I have a a very good friend who used to work with Karl Rove, who once described to me um, his uh, usual practice in uh, advising a candidate for high office as he would find out what are the big vulnerabilities that might come out uh, that would really damage you. And then Rove would actually plant a false story um, that would run in the media that was about something close to that weakness, uh, but not the core of it. And that would come out, then would be exposed as a falsehood, And that would provide a sort of inoculation or immunization against the scandal. And I think the um, core of what Durham is trying to do is that sort of uh, political immunization exercise. That is, get everyone to focus on a small piece of the Steele dossier, which can be proven to be inaccurate or false, and then use this as a basis to say, well, there, you see, the whole thing is a farce. Uh, it's it's uh, it's lies. It's politically motivated. Just don't look at any of it. Um, and that's, in fact, exactly what he's done. Um, so he is he has bored down on um, really trivial things, um, which are not even at the core of the steel dossier itself, much less the overall uh, accusations. And even there, even there, what he has pulled out as uh, a falsehood has not, frankly, been proven effectively to be a falsehood. Um, the evidence is really quite equivocal on all of these things and quite uncertain. And we have to go back and remember that, of course, what Steele was doing was not saying, here, I've got the goods that will prove all these things. What he was doing when he went to the FBI was to say, what we have here is sufficient inquiry notice. There is there's enough information here to suggest that you should follow up and do an investigation using your own resources of these things. So I think it's a very fair question why Merrick Garland didn't simply shut down the entire thing. I can understand that he believes the independent counsel should have 
uh, operational independence, but which, by the way, is not something that William Barr felt. William Barr tried to direct it all, all along the way. Um, and I guess I know from my own sources inside the Department of Justice uh, that Barr was continuously attempting to influence Durham to do exactly what Durham did, that is to bring some charges which would cause people to look askance at Steele and the Steele dossier and to disbelieve it, and to bring these charges before the election uh, in, 20, um, in 2020 so that they could be used to political effect. Uh, and he um, did, in fact, bring such charges, but he did not bring them before the election. And I think it's important to note that, you know, key members of Durham's own staff resigned before these charges were brought, including his his senior deputy, Nora Danahy, uh, who left um, and several others left, um, all of which suggests uh, that they're even on his own staff, a number of people uh, we're not on board with this. I'm also told when some of these things were brought before the grand jury, uh, that the grand jury battled back to some extent, and they were very concerned that they wouldn't secure the indictment. So all that suggests he's got a weak case and it's politically manipulated. So this is exactly the sort of thing that should not be going on and would really provide Merrick Garland with plenty of cause to simply terminate and wrap up the investigation. Well, that's led a lot of people, and particularly some of the people on the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Uh, there's apparently something like 36 potential criminal referrals uh, to the DOJ, including a criminal referral of Donald Trump himself. And some of these members of the committee are, are worried that Garland just is not up for the task. He doesn't have the, the killer instinct. Or you don't even want a killer instinct. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me what you what are you learning from the DOJ? Why does this guy? All I've heard is that he's worried that if you come down too hard on the insurrectionists and particularly those that planned it, somehow you make you'll divide the country even further. I mean, what the hell is going on with Garland? Why is he so weak and why is he treating these traitors with kid gloves? Well, he believes very strongly that the power of prosecution and criminal inquiry should not be used for political purposes, or partisan political or generally political purposes, which I think is uh, correct. And I think that's a very important uh, tenet of the Department of Justice, um, uh, one that's been observed uh, not uniformly across American history, but I would say in the period since uh, you know the 1920s and 1930s, it's been pretty uh, well respected. Uh, and he's very concerned that making the DOJ the center of some sort of political warfare um, would uh, diminish its stature in the eyes of the American public. Um, so that's an appropriate concern, but you know it doesn't mean that you don't uh, bring cases where there's clearly been uh, conduct that's tantamount to sedition or treason, uh, which is going on here. And I think you're right. I mean, what I expect to emerge from the January 6th commission, I'd say I'd say there'll be a report. That'll be one thing, sort of fact finding. Second, there will be a series of criminal referrals. Um, I would be very surprised if the criminal referral list was not led by a criminal referral of um, uh, of Donald Trump. I think it could be two dozen or more individuals who are covered by it, and a significant part of them will be people at the top. 
Uh, and I think it'll be very difficult for him to uh, behave dismissively with those referrals. But I'm very concerned he's going to take far too much time with them. And then I think the third thing that will emerge will be new legislation addressing the Electoral Count Act and things of, of, of that sort. So does Merrick Garland have the stomach for this? I, I don't know. But I, one other thing I will tell you is if he's going to do it and do it effectively, uh, he cannot show his hand in any sort of political way before he takes action. He should be quiet and he should be detached and he should be very cautious about it. So one shouldn't read too much into um, that silence. And remember in the Steve Bannon case, it took him 16 days to uh, bring the action. So that's not really a terribly long period of time, notwithstanding all the complaints uh, that were brought about it. So if he acts uh, quickly on the Meadows referral and some of the others, um, we'll, be a, we'll be seeing a sign of much more engagement. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much uh, for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My great pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor to Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing what patriotic Americans can do to save their democracy from the resurgence of plutocratic populism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ian Haney-Lopez, who is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America and a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law School. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And he has an essay at Protect Democracy. Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy? An Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Haney-Lopez. Thank you so much. Glad to speak with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, we all know that Donald Trump announced his presidency at Trump Tower on the escalator demonizing Mexicans and then later Muslims. And that's a tried and true tactic that the, the Nazis and Hitler used in the 30s, the internal enemy. First, of course, it was the leftists and the communists and then later the Jews. So I know that using the word fascism is often thrown around rather loosely, but it does feel like in many ways what's happening to this country is in a way following the footsteps of Germany in the 30s. How, how do you see the, particularly as this new year begins? I, I don't think fascism applied so easily four years ago, five years ago. But I think that every American needs to rethink what's happening with the country in light of 2021. 
we're coming up on the one year anniversary of an insurrection, a a storming of Congress to try and stop democratic processes. And even a year ago, on January 6th, it might have seemed like, well, that was a political rally that, that got out of hand. But the more we know, the more we understand that that was actually part of a larger strategy to sow chaos, to disrupt the certification of the election, and to give the Trump administration time to pursue a plan to upend the will of the American people and to seize power. And and I think we know one other thing after 2021 that's incredibly important, and that is that the coup that was attempted on January 6th has not been repudiated by the Republican Party, but that on the contrary, many Republicans are engaged in a contemporary slow motion coup. And that takes the form of legitimating, indeed um, um, turning into heroes, the, the people involved in the January 6th insurrection, but also changing the rules of democracy itself in terms of voter disenfranchisement, in terms of gerrymandering, in terms of uh, Republican Party officials taking control of elections. And I think it's that the combination of an internal enemy, the demonization of fellow Americans, combined with a, a, an attempt to hijack democratic processes and a turn towards anti-democratic means to retain power against the will of the majority, it's under those circumstances that scary as it is, we need to face a word like fascism as a descriptor of our reality, because I don't, I don't think we've seen a moment as perilous as this for the United States as a country since the eve of the Civil War. Well, you could argue, Ian Henny Lopez, that there is a similar secession underway, and perhaps even more successful than the Confederacy, in as much as a lot of Americans in the red states, and particularly in Florida and, and in Texas, where they are creating a tyranny of the minority. It seems that a lot of red state Americans and on the right and Trump supporters don't want to live with the rest of America, and that they want to create a kind of tyranny of the minority and make us all permanent second-class citizens. And in four days' time, there'll be the the anniversary of January the 6th, which Trump is apparently doing a press conference down at Mar-a-Lago. But the point that you just made, I think, is the really telling one, that what they got wrong on January the 6th, where they came close, they've worked hard to fix those holes in their strategy so that next time around, they succeed. I think that's right. And I think that the, the, the one thing that I would emphasize when we say tyranny of the mi- minority is I, I think we really have to be very clear about where the threat to American democracy is coming from. And yes, it's true that Americans are increasingly pitted against each other and that there's a, a strain of antisocial of violence and vigilanteism and conspiracy thinking among a lot of Trump supporters, especially the QAnon folks. But that's not the real locus of the threat. I think the threat is behind those folks in 
the propaganda machinery that is systematically lying to people and telling people that um, they're in danger from other Americans. And behind that propaganda machine, in turn, are things like the Koch donor network and the Mercer family um, and people like Steve Bannon. Um, that is, there are billionaires and collections, networks of billionaires who see an advantage to themselves in turning Americans against each other so that they can more easily control government for their own selfish interest to ensure there's no um, regulation of petrochemical industries or, or effective environmental regulation to ensure that corporations and wealthy family dynasties continue to have uh, historically low tax rates. That is, the minority that threatens us is not 40% of Americans who believe Fox News propaganda. It's the minority who controls Fox News propaganda, the minority who controls the sort of the Heritage Foundation and the Manhattan Institute, these so-called think tanks that are actually right-wing right propaganda machines extolling the virtues of rule by the rich. That's where the real threat is coming from. And we really need to turn our, our attention to it so that, so that we ourselves don't fall into this trap of thinking that the biggest threat in our lives comes from large swaths of other Americans. But instead, we recognize the biggest threat to American democracy comes from the greedy rich who have incredible wealth and power and are using it. And, and I think the greedy rich, I just want to be very clear. I don't mean all the rich. No. I mean, I mean, what, what FDR You're talking about Peter the malefactors. <laughs> yes, exactly. What, yeah. what FDR would call the malefactors of great wealth, the people who are convinced that society should run for the benefit of the wealthy and they're willing to use their excessive wealth to bend society in the direction of their own will. Right. Those are the people who threaten us. And their, and their method is promote a propaganda of fear and hysteria and an internal enemy that threatens us, convince people to turn against each other so that they might more easily, they, the, the, the Coke donor network, might more easily control politicians uh, and, and buy American democracy. So what you're describing in Hanley Lopez is plutocratic populism. Exactly. Or, or plutocratic rule through the promotion of a white nationalist populism that has the effect of turning us against each other and, and destroying our society while also ensuring we cannot solve major social problems like a pandemic, like enormous wealth inequality, such as imminent environmental collapse, such as debt burdens that are overwhelming vast majorities of Americans. We can't solve any of those problems. And the reason we can't solve them is because plutocrats are convincing us that the real source of, of threat in our lives comes from each other and that we shouldn't work together. And again, I'm speaking with Ian Haney Lopez, Chief Justice Earl Warren, Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley. 
and an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, and he is the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, and he has an essay at Protect Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy, an Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. So let's talk about what the Democrats can and should do in terms of what you call race-left language that's not being persuasive. Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that the right is using racial rhetoric as a means of dividing people against each other, of scaring people, and also that this is incredibly effective, not just with white voters, but with voters of color. And I think that this is the big shock. You're so right to say, you know, let's, let's track the rise of Donald Trump back to 2015 when he descends the elevator and capitalizing on his anti-Obama birtherism rhetoric, he starts his electoral campaign by uh, insulting people coming from Mexico as rapists. If we start there, though, we also have to add that in a way that's absolutely stunning, in 2020, Donald Trump won more support compared to 2016 among Latinos, among Asian Americans, among African Americans. That is, from 2016 to 2020, Donald Trump increased his support from every major non-white racial group at the same time that he campaigned on themes of racial threat. And, and this is hard to understand. This is hard to get our head around. How could it be that somebody who campaigns so explicitly on narratives of white racial anxiety simultaneously gained support from Latinos, African Americans, and Asian Americans? And the explanation is that though the themes were themes of racial threat, the language was a language of good people versus bad people, innocent and law-abiding and hardworking people versus people who are undeserving and dangerous and violent. And using that sort of rhetoric, Donald Trump managed to gain support among lots of people, including many people of color, who want to understand themselves as the good ones and not the bad ones, not the the threat, the undeserving. That's the challenge for, for the Democratic Party. And to put a label on it, that is the challenge of identity politics. The right is really, really good at identity politics, a politics that says people vote in terms of a story about who they are in society, whether they're respected or welcomed or whether instead they're threatening and undeserving. People vote in terms of a story about who threatens them and who will support them. That's identity politics. That's the way the right has been campaigning for 50 years. Democrats, when it comes to identity politics, are instead at war with each other. 
So some Democrats say we need an identity story that's all about racial justice for communities of color. And implicitly, this is an identity story that makes whites the problem in society. And other Democrats turn around and say, wow, that kind of an identity story is going to lose a lot of white voters. Why don't we just talk about policy, which is to say they reject the idea that Democrats should be talking about identity at all. And you can just see what an enormous mistake that is if the right is talking about identity all the time. It's not going to work for Democrats to say, well, we don't really want to talk about identity. We, we know that the Republicans are showing, um, you know, some horror movie and surround sound. We want our voters to turn to we can review and talk policy. It's never going to work. It's not, it's not how politics works. What Democrats need is an identity story that brings together a multiracial working class coalition. And that's the agenda. And, and the way to craft that identity story is not by ignoring racism, certainly not by emphasizing policy divorced from identity. Rather, the way to craft that story is to tell a story about racism as a weapon being used by the very few against all of us. And all of us being better off when we build power across racial lines, when we tackle problems of racial inequity, when we create an integrated society in which we really take care of each other. That's the identity story that Democrats need to get behind. Well, if you look at one of the most popular memes now on the right, and that is this Let's Go Brandon, which is obviously a clever right-wing fusion of all of the owning the libs, the idea that some reporter at a NASCAR event when the crowd was saying, F Biden, F Biden, he, he said that they were saying, let's go, Brandon, who's interviewing a, a NASCAR driver, Brandon. So that seems to be so popular because it, it touches all the bases, doesn't it? Owning the libs, the liberal media, being the, the target, it also gives them permission to say F you to the President of the United States, does it not? It, it does, and in a way that, you know, that they can then pretend that it's just a joke and that exactly. people don't, you know, yeah. need to have a sense of humor. Well, how do you disarm that mentality, though, that finds that comforting and amusing and that feels that people like you and I are just, you know, idiots, that uh, soy boys, we're weak and facile and don't get it somehow or other. So so one thing is to be clear that we don't need to completely disarm it. As somebody who's been focusing on the use of race in American politics, I've worked beyond the academy. I've worked with unions. I've worked with communication specialists and pollsters to really get out in the field and understand how political rhetoric is working. And in that research, it, it seems clear that there's about 20%, which is to say one in five Americans who are really deeply committed to a right-wing view of American politics. And I would describe this view as saying, as is encompassing, I would describe this view as encompassing three elements, 
a dislike or distrust of people of color, a hatred of government, a sense that social progress really depends on the rich and on individual effort, right? So we're not going to reach those folks ever. At the same time, there's a slightly greater number, 21, 22% of Americans who are committed to what I would call a progressive worldview. They believe government has the power and the authority to create routes of upward mobility for the working class. They feel warmly towards people of color. Um, They believe that it's circumstances more than individual effort that have a lot to do with people's life experiences. We've got those folks already. That leaves about 60% who shift between or combine different aspects of these worldviews. That's who we're really trying to talk to. So we don't, we don't need to reach the people <laughs> who chortle and put a let's go Brandon bumper sticker on their pickup truck. That's not who we need to reach. We need to reach 60, 70% of Americans who want to know how we get through this pandemic together, how we ensure that the planet has an environment that is healthy for our children and our grandchildren, how we create routes of upward mobility so that our children have a better quality of life than we do. And we need to speak to those folks in plain, accessible terms, but in identity terms, not in policy terms, in identity terms. And by identity, I mean in a language that says we're all in this together, we're doing the best we can, but some people, dangerous people, are intentionally trying to divide us, whether that's the Koch brothers or Tucker Carlson. When they divide us, they laugh all the way to the bank. When we come together and fight for each other, even across lines of difference, that's when we can take care of our own family in addition to our communities and our state and our country. That's the story we need. And I want to be very clear, this is a story that works um, in urban areas and heavily democratic areas, but it's also a story that works in rural America. There's a group, People's Action, that serves as an umbrella organization or trying to organize people in rural America. Rural America is much more racially diverse than most people think. Um, People in rural America really are thinking in terms of uh, where does the threat come from? These are hard times. We're we're struggling to to make it. Um, The right Fox News is telling them all the time the threat comes from Muslims. It comes from Latinos. It comes from China. What people's action has found out is if they respond by saying, no, the threat is coming from Wall Street. The threat is coming from greedy billionaires and petrochemical industries. Let's build power with our neighbors. That works in rural America. Um, And I should add, in in our testing, that sort of message of cross-racial solidarity to make sure that we can take care of our, um, our own families that's the most popular political message with Latinos, with African Americans, with Asian Americans, and also with white Americans. There really is a powerful identity story that, um, that is available to, to the Democratic Party right now. What it requires, though, is that the Democratic Party leadership 
commit to a story of racial solidarity in the service of taking care of working class Americans, of working families in America. That's the push. That's where I think it's so important that progressives push the Democratic Party to say, we need a party committed to cross-racial, cross-class solidarity to take care of all of us. Well, Ian Haney Lopez, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And again, I'll be speaking with Ian Haney Lopez, who is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And he has an essay at Protect Democracy, Can Democracy and the Democratic Party Survive Racism as a Strategy, an Argument for Race-Class Fusion Politics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes on